All right. I'm going to invite you guys to make your way to Luke chapter 3. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3 again this week. So uh, as we've been working our way through Luke's gospel over the past several months now, uh, we've been kind of looking in at little individual stories every week. And so uh, this week we're going to continue through uh, the book. We're going to continue through the story, but it's going to look a little bit different this week. Something uh, I wanted to, to do something a little bit different with our time together here this morning. So uh, normally, what we do is, is we come to some verses and we kind of we dial in on those verses, right? Uh, if we compare it to going out and, and going on a hike and being on a hike, we, we zone in and we look at the specific details. You may have heard the, the saying that uh, people will uh, lose the sight of the forest by looking at the trees, Well, what we're going to do this week is uh, we're going to continue looking at the next story that comes up, but instead of dialing in on some of those small details, we're going to look at some big picture ideas. We're going to look at some big themes, some big messages that come from Scripture that we see traced throughout Scripture that show up in our passage this week. And so we're going to look at some of those specific ideas and, and try to look at the metaphorical forest instead of dialing in and looking at Uh, some of those metaphorical trees. So uh, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in with a couple of different themes today. Would you guys pray with me? God, we we just, we thank you for, uh, God, for your work in our lives. God, we thank you that we can gather together, that we can uh, continue to be the church. God, the the church is not something that we go to and attend on Sunday mornings or or on Saturday nights. God, the church is not something that we uh, are, are a part of as uh, someone attends a program or attends a uh, concert or, or something else like that. God, we are the church. The church is an organism that continues to live and move and breathe in us, whether, uh, God, we are uh, together in person or whether we are together in spirit as we watch from home. God, uh, the church is still at work in the world, whether we have worship services on Sunday mornings or, or whether we uh, gather in small groups around in different parts of society in different parts of the world. So God, we praise you. We thank you that this morning as the church is still at work in the world, the church is still meeting and and gathering and uh, doing the things that they've been called to do all around the world in whatever uh, different country, whatever different uh, context they find themselves in. God, we are still your church. And God, as your church gathers together this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. God, that you would... uh, God, illuminate us to the word that you have for us today. God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what it is that the Spirit would say to us this morning as we look at some of these big ideas that are, that are really essential to our Christian faith and essential to who we are as believers. So, uh, God, we give this time to you and we pray that you would speak and that you would use it. And it's in your precious, uh, perfect, beautiful, uh, holy Son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, guys, we're going to look at a couple of different big ideas, and we're going to look at some really big ideas in hopefully a really small package, because we could easily spend 8 to 12 to 20 to 30 hours on each of these topics, so we're not going to do that. We're going to see if we can get them all in like five to ten minutes each. So uh, the first thing that we're going to look at that we see in Luke chapter 3 that, that we're looking at this week is the deity of Christ. The, the fact that God uh, is put into bodily form in, in Jesus Christ. 
And we see that kind of strike out, it jumps out to us from Jesus' baptism that we see in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. The focus in these verses on Jesus involves the designation that Jesus is God's Son. We talked about it a little bit uh, over the past few weeks as we've looked at Jesus as an adolescent. Uh, But the voice from heaven that we're going to see in these verses today announces that Jesus is God's Son, and and there's simply no other way for us to to, to dice that. There's there's no other way for us to look at it other than Jesus truly is God as we look at these verses. So let's read Luke chapter 3 verses. We're just going to read verses 21 and 22 and consider this section where Jesus is baptized in Luke's gospel. Verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized... Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. From the crowd's perspective, as as the crowds were gathering, we've we've talked about John the Baptist over the past few weeks, and uh, these crowds are coming out to the wilderness that John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We've talked about how John was telling people they had to turn their back on sin and, and forsake, I, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to follow God and I want to I live the way that he tells me to. And so people have been coming out and been baptized person after person after person. There are probably long lines, big crowds, it tells us, that have come out to be baptized by John the baptizer in the wilderness. And so uh, I have to imagine as it talks about this, it, it talks about how the crowds were gathered and, and Jesus just comes along and, and is another person in the crowd. It, it may have seemed like a normal baptism. Jesus is just the next guy going into the water, and it may have seemed routine at first, but this was far from a, a routine experience. This was far from being like all of the other people who had come to be baptized, because in the next few moments as Jesus entered into the water and was baptized and then comes up out of the water, uh, the, the scriptures tell us each one of the gospels gives us a version of this story of Jesus being baptized by John. It tells us that the three persons of the Holy Trinity would celebrate the, the sonship, would celebrate the deity of Jesus in this moment. While Luke doesn't mention it, though, we have reason to believe that the multitudes saw that the heavens opened up, that, that the multitudes, that the crowds were there saw that this spirit that descended on Jesus like a dove uh, came and they were stunned by this. We, uh, if we look at a couple of other uh, portions of this story from the other gospel, if we look at Matthew's account, we see Matthew gives us Jesus' perspective of this. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it says that after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. If we flip over to the gospel of John, in, in John chapter 1, it tells us what John the Baptist's view of this baptism was. In John chapter 1, verse 32, it says, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. So coming from this ripping open of the clouds, from the expanse beyond the clouds as the sky was ripped open, uh, John and Jesus, and most likely if John saw it, that means that it wasn't just something that happened between uh, God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This was something that the crowd was able to witness as well. And they were 
surely watching in amazement as the Holy Spirit comes and lands upon Jesus, fluttering with the, the wings of a dove in this form of a dove. It comes down and the Holy Spirit lands upon Jesus. And as John suggests, the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus, that he would not depart from him during his time here, during his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit would continue to rest upon Jesus. So those first two manifestations, those first two things that we see here in uh, the uh, skies being ripped open, that, that heaven was opened up and that the dove descended, those were visual things that we see. But the next confirmation that we see from heaven is not just a visual cue, but it's actually a verbal cue. In verse 22 in our passage, we see the words that, that God utters in front of all of these people. He says, You are my son whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. The Father looks down from heaven, looks down at the Lord Jesus, and uh, looks at him and says to, to, to Jesus and to everyone who is there with him, this is my son and it pleases me. He pleases me in the way that he has come and willingly given of himself. This is why, if we, if we take a step back for just a minute, this is why this reality is why all of us who are in Christ, all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus for our salvation, it's why we no longer have to fear what God thinks of us. Because when God looks at Jesus and he says, this is my son whom I love and in him I am well pleased, well, we also know that what was on Jesus' account, Jesus' perfect life, Jesus's, uh, the, the way that God looks at Jesus, that was put on our account at the cross. The sin that we had earned, that, that when God previously looked at us, that, that sin was put on Jesus' account, and the great exchange happened at the cross. So now you and I don't have to come in wondering, is God mad at me? How does, how does God feel about me? When we see this message, this is my son, in him I am well pleased, guys, we can take that as ourselves too. Not because we're good, not because we're righteous, not because of anything that we've done other than receiving the gift of, of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's salvation that came in the form of Jesus. But the father looks at this son and, and sees a faithful servant, sees the one who is obviously and clearly and, and aggressively communicated throughout Scripture. He is God. And I want us to pause here and, and use, we're gonna, I'm just going to tell you guys now, welcome to like Honors Course Church today. I know you didn't come in looking for uh, anything special. You didn't sign up for the advanced class today, but we're going to use a few big words, but don't be scared of them. We're going to use big words that explain big truths, but we're going to make it simple enough that hopefully everyone leaves here understanding and, and feeling like you've gone and gotten like a crash course in seminary today. So everybody, we're good? We're going to make sense of this? So the theological name for this truth that we're looking at, that that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. There's a big term for that that theologians call the hypostatic union. So I stuck the definition of this, kind of the, the reality of this on a slide for you guys. It says, the doctrine declared at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, so 1600 years ago, attempting to describe the miraculous bringing together of both humanity and divinity in the same person, Jesus Christ, such as he is both fully divine and fully human. Now, I know anybody that's uh, out there in the cafe watching this or, or, or listening at home with their kids, uh, you guys see 
a math problem, we, guys, we all went to first grade, right? Like if, if we sit down with our additions flashcards and we see one plus one equals two, right? Yeah, I got my math right there. All right, in Jesus, he was fully God. He was fully human in one person. So while this is incredibly important, while this is, this is absolutely true, uh, your kindergarten math is going to fail you today, and it's going to fail us even more in just a minute uh, when we look at another truth. But Jesus was both fully God and fully human. He wasn't half God and half human. He wasn't somehow less human than you or I are. He wasn't somehow less God than, than the Father or the Spirit. He was fully God and fully man. And the reason why all of this is important, the reason why this is essential for us to understand and, and kind of grasp, and that we're stopping and looking at this, is because both of those things are essential for Jesus to be what Hebrews describes as the mediator, the one who stands between God and people. See, if, if Jesus wasn't fully man, he had to be fully man. If he wasn't fully man, he, he couldn't identify with us. We'd look at him and we would see the example of Jesus and we'd go, yeah, I mean, it's good, but, but he's not really like me. He doesn't understand the things that I go through. No, he was, he was fully human. He was tempted just as we are. He has experienced everything that we experience, but was without sin. And that's important for us. He also had to be fully man because the, the anger of God, the wrath of God, the punishment that you and I deserve, if he wasn't a man, he can't go to the cross and pay the punishment that we deserve. It's essential that he was man so that he could suffer in our place. But we also have to agree that he was fully God. Because Jesus had to be truly God in order to satisfy the wrath of God for everyone. If any of us receive the wrath of God for our sin, for our punishment, well, that's, that's great. God pours out the wrath that we deserve on us, but I can't pay the price for someone else. I can't appease God's wrath for someone else. So when Jesus had to, to come and to offer his life as a sacrifice, it's not something that Jesus just could do for himself. He, he had to do it for me. He had to do it for you. And he had to be fully God or else the sacrifice wasn't enough for everybody. In order for him to secure life for us, in order for his death to be sufficient, he had to be fully God as well. So we got that, right? Hypostatic union. Jesus was fully God and fully human. He didn't stop being God when he came to earth he didn't stop being a man when he went back to heaven. He had to play both. I see a thumb. I got one thumb out of, okay, I got two. All right, we got thumbs. All right. So the first thing, wow, it is blowing heat in here, like blasting down on me. You guys, I know everybody in California is like cold-blooded and stuff, right? I'm the crazy guy that lives in the cold from Virginia. All right, we're going to sweat together this morning. All right, the second thing that we see in our passage that we're looking at today is we see the truth. We see the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, before we get too far into that, I will, I will give you guys, I'll, I'll share with you, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll admit it up front. I've heard people argue, why do people talk about the Trinity? Why is the Trinity such a big deal? That The Trinity's not even in the Bible. Hey, has anyone ever realized that before? If you go back, in the back of your Bible, there's a concordance, which I'd encourage you if you haven't figured out how to use that before, you go back here and you can look up words that are in the Bible and it tells you all the different places that those ideas or those words are found in the scriptures. So if you go back to your concordance and you look for the word Trinity, you know what you're going to find? 
Absolutely nothing. The word Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere. But just because the word isn't found in Scripture doesn't mean that the idea isn't found in Scripture. The idea of the fact that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all in there, are all fully God, are all equal, it's scattered all over the place. And we even see it this week's passage that we're looking at is a really clear, it's a really important part of this as we look at this idea of the Trinity. I want to read the same two verses that we just read a minute ago, but now we're going to be listening and looking for it to illustrate the reality of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let's read those again. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. This text is obviously, uh, it, it pretty clearly shows us that the Trinity is true, right? At Jesus' baptism, all three persons of the Godhead are present in this moment, in this small story, right? The, the Trinity is fully seen here because God the Father is there. He's the voice from heaven that speaks, that says, you are my son and you I am well pleased. So we see the Father illustrated here in this story. God the Son, Jesus, is, is obviously there. He's the one that's in the water, so we know that God the Son, Jesus, is there. And God the Holy Spirit, it says, descended out of heaven, came down, and rested on Jesus in the form of a dove. This one text, the, the, these, these two simple verses, really simply put, clearly illustrate something that, that people get really hung up over and really confused over as they try to pick the Bible apart, try to, try to point out problems and errors and, and issues that they may have with it. I, I want to point out one specific flaw, one specific heresy, one specific thing that, that this is a big deal. This is something that's really a problem if we get mixed up and get confused about this. This idea, this heresy uh, is called modalism. This heresy uh, is, is uh, it, it doesn't view that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three particular persons. They're, they're not three different people that are in relationship to each other. They're simply three different modes. They're three different uh, manifestations. They're, they're three different forms of one divine person of God. It's, uh, uh, they say that in the Old Testament, God is the Father. That we see in, as we were going through the book of Deuteronomy, we saw, well, God is, God is the big guy. He's, he's the Father that's up in heaven and, and the angry one. And he's the one that, that, that comes down and lightning and thunder rumbles. And that, that's God the Father. And then in the New Testament, they say that God takes on a different form. That he, that he looks different. That he changes forms. And so instead of being the angry justice God that we see in the Old Testament, now he's, he's the sweet, loving, gentle man who came as Jesus. And so God the Father that we see in the Old Testament no longer exists. He's, he's the sweet person, the sweet man that we see, Jesus. And then they'll also argue that as Jesus goes away, then the Holy Spirit is able to come. And, and, and they'll say that Jesus had to go away so that God's Spirit could dwell in us. That these aren't three separate persons of God. They're all just one that he takes on a new form. Can I tell you guys, these verses, they simply prove that that can't be true, right? They simply prove God can't be one person that, that takes on three different forms because if he did, 
the world would have like exploded or something when he was all three forms at the same time. We look at the baptism of Jesus and we see God is all three forms simultaneously. So modalism simply can't be true. So maybe you're sitting here listening to me going, all right, so that's a thing, but it's not a thing that we have to worry about. I'm sure there was a church council like 1,500 years ago that said that was bad and, and people don't believe that anymore. And so we're, Why are we talking about modalism? Why are we talking about that? Well, it's because that's not just an old heresy that existed uh, hundreds or thousands of years ago. There are modern teachers today that are preaching in their churches that, that preach this. There are popular preachers today that are preaching in their churches that preach this. It's the reason why there, there's a few people in this room that I've sat and had conversations with of, no, we're, we're not going to go to that conference because that preacher believes in heresy about the Trinity. We're not going to go and we're not going to listen to that preacher preach. We're not going to sing music from, from that person's church. We're not going to uh, participate with that group of people because, guys, this is a big deal. And it's something that doesn't just exist hundreds of years ago. It doesn't just exist in some dark corner of the Internet somewhere. It exists in churches today. At other times, people, people look at this idea. They, they wrestle with the mystery, mystery of the Trinity. And instead of trying to make the Trinity one person that just takes different forms, they try to make parts of the Trinity subordinate to other parts. So, for example, uh, with that, they would argue that Jesus is, is not quite God but is more than man. He, he kind of fits somewhere in the middle. That's what we were just talking about, right? He has to be fully God and fully man. He, he can't just live in some weird in-between space where he's, he's kind of God and he's, he's kind of man. They also would try to argue, would try to tell us that the Spirit is more like a, a Star Wars thing, that he's like a force that, that you can't really see and you can't really feel, but it kind of just moves stuff around. and de- No, no. Just because we can't see him doesn't mean that he's not a person and doesn't mean that he's not at work in our lives. The Spirit is not the force for, for Darth Vader to summon when he needs it. The Spirit is a person that's at work in our lives. So, theology time. We're going to read a, a, a small portion of the Athanasian Creed that, that really clearly explains what the Trinity is. Where I, I just picked out a small portion of it, and I... I fear, I suspect that everybody's going to get really confused, but we're going to read it anyways, and then we're going to make sure that we can make sense of it, all right? So, the Athanasian Creed that talks about the Trinity, it says, This is the true Christian faith, that we worship one God in three persons, three persons in one God, without confusing the persons or dividing the divine substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is still another. There is one Godhead of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit equal in glory, and co-equal in majesty. Everybody understand what that means? Everybody, like, we're, we're, we're tracking with that, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they're all different, all right? They're, they're different people, but there's not three gods. There's one God. If you're confused, maybe, a visual, maybe you're a visual person like me. So I saw this diagram, and it makes a little bit more sense of it, all right? So we've got God the Father. He is God, right? But he's not the Son, and He's not the Spirit. God the Son is God, right? But He's not the Father, and He's not the Spirit. Spirit, same thing. He, he is God, but He's not the Father, and He's not the Son. All right? Everybody's, everybody's try, I, I put a pretty picture. Every, everybody should make sense of it now, right? Everybody's tracking. All right. Is anybody still confused? 
maybe an analogy would, would be helpful for you, right? Maybe if we can just make sense of it and, and, and put something tangible for today, if we can make sense of it, maybe the picture didn't help, maybe an analogy will help. So I've actually, it's, it's been a few weeks since we've had a cartoon in church. Like I, I know you guys look forward to cartoon time. So we've got a cartoon that hopefully will help make a little bit more sense of how does the Trinity all fit together as this three-in-one. So let's watch our cartoon now. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine, the Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Got it? Everybody, everybody tracking now? All right. So now you understand. Don't, don't, don't try to use an analogy because it's just going to come up short somehow. The, the best way for us to explain the Trinity is 
buckling our seatbelts, hanging on for dear life, and spending an eternity of life trying to make sense of the fact that, that we worship one God. The Bible is clear. It says that, that we are one, talking about the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We, we worship one God, but he's not just one person. We see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Spirit. We, we experience the work of each of them in our life, right? God, God is at work in us. God is at work through us. And, 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 and the Father plays a role in that. And the Son plays a role in that. And the Spirit plays a role in that. Some of the smartest people that I've ever read books from or, or had opportunities to speak to or, or listen to, theologians can spend their entire life trying to understand this. This is something that, that, that people will spend scores of years in higher education and learning, trying to understand and explain and grasp the mystery of the Trinity. And we covered it in like nine minutes. So uh, you guys understand it all. We're, we're fully caught up to speed, right? And if you have questions, uh, just let me know because there's like thousands of pages on this that we can uh, point you in the direction of. And, and all those smart guys that have it all figured out, I'll tell you to, where to find their stuff because I'm confused by it too. But you know what? It's essential, and it's really important. And if we, if we drive off the, the rails with modalism, there's dangers with that for our, for our life, practically. If we believe in partialism, well, there's, there's dangers in our life with that, really, practically. Uh, this is important. So good luck. All right? That's all I got for you. The third thing, that, the third big picture thing that we're going to see in our passage that, that we're going to look at is... The fact that Jesus is what's described in the New Testament as the second Adam. We see that in the genealogy. And so if we look at verses 23 all the way through 38, what you're going to see is a whole bunch of names that I don't want to spend like four minutes butchering and, and mispronouncing. And you guys don't want to listen to that and I don't want to try that. But there are some really important people here because what we see in this genealogy is Luke sets out to trace the family line, all the way from Jesus, all the way back to, to Adam and to God, all the way through his history of existence. So while we look at this and we may read that and we go, oh, look at that, a list of names that I don't know many of these guys. I, I recognize a few of those names, but I don't know many of them. What in the world is Luke trying to accomplish here? Well, there's, there's one key intention as we look at this. If, if we point out some of the details from this, There's one key intention that should become really clear for us as we look at the unique elements of of what's special about this genealogy. But before we consider that intent, I want to point out something that that hopefully we don't get hung up on, but uh, is is just a reality that I think is important for us to note. On the surface, this genealogy, when we read it, appears to be a genealogy of Joseph, the the man who was uh, believed to be the father of Jesus, the Mary's husband, right? So as we look at this, we see in verse 23, it says, When when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So if we look at this, it, it, it says Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph, for one thing, though, we, if we look back to Matthew, there's another genealogy that talks about Joseph's family. 
And that genealogy and this genealogy don't match. They don't make sense. From Joseph all the way back to King David, it, it takes a totally different family tree to get there. So how did Joseph have one set of family in Matthew and a different set of family in Luke? Well, there's some different ideas about that. There's some different uh, explanations about that. The, as I studied all of this, I'm just going to give you like the super boiled down version. The best way that we can make sense of it, I believe the best explanation for this, is that this isn't Joseph's family. This is Joseph's adoptive family. Because if, if Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't have any brothers, it was very, very, very likely in biblical times that, that, that Mary's mom and dad would have adopted Joseph when they got married as their adoptive son to be the heir of their family, to be the one who carried on the name, to be the one that the family line continued through. So if Mary and her family adopted Joseph, and we look at it and we see as verse 23 talks about Joseph being supposedly the, the, the father of Jesus, we know that wasn't the case because uh, Jesus was born by God uh, placing Jesus in Mary. What we see here is Mary's genealogy. Mary's family, not Joseph's family. And so uh, we don't have time to, to get into all of it. But uh, simply put, what I believe this is, is Luke explaining the human lineage of Jesus. Pointing out that, that if, if, if his family line comes through Joseph, that's great for the, the family rights and the family name and the family, all of that stuff but he didn't have Joseph's blood running through his veins, right? And so if Jesus is going to be fully man, well, he's got to have human blood running from somewhere, right? That humanity that, that is in Jesus came from Mary. Mary is the human mother of Jesus, the one that carried Jesus, the one that, that gave humanity, gave life to Jesus. So as we see all of this, I started talking and lost my spot. All right, we see a couple of important names as we look through this. We see names that are probably going to be familiar for us. We, we see the lineage of Jesus go back to uh, people like David. We recognize David. That's a name that we recognize, right? We see the name Abraham in there. Well, that's a name that we recognize, right? We see Adam in there. That's a, that's a name that we recognize, right? All of those names play really important, really key character roles in the story of the Bible. In the whole story, the covenant of David, that's, that's a big deal. God talked about that a lot. We're not going to talk about it, but, but we remember David, right? The covenant, the, the promise that God made with Abraham, well, that was, that was one that was really significant. We remember that. God promised that, that the world was going to be saved, that, that, that Abraham and that God's family was going to grow through the line of Abraham. So that's a really big deal. That one's really important, right? But what we see when it goes all the way back to Adam is this is a, a genealogy that's really unique. And especially when it goes back even beyond Adam. In verse 38, we see the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. It says even beyond that, the son of God. We could describe Adam as a son of God, that, that, that Adam didn't have a human father to, to point back to. He didn't have genealogy that went past him. So he wasn't the son of anybody except God created him. God was the father of Adam. This ending is, is one of a kind. 
There's no parallel in the Old Testament. There's no parallel in any uh, rabbinic texts, any, any ancient literature. There, there is no other genealogy that we can look back to and go, oh, it, it traces the genealogy of someone all the way back through Adam to God. What Luke does here is unique. And as he refers to Adam as the first son of God, what he points to is the fact that, that Adam is kind of a symbol for a lot of things, right? Adam is the father of humanity. He's, he's also pointed to as the father of sin. It was, it was through the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, that, that sin entered the world, that the world fractured, that the world became broken, that, that death came into the world, that all kinds of flaws and, and, and fractures came into the human existence. And as it talks about Jesus being connected back to Adam and, and being a son of God just like Adam was, we see that as the second Adam, Jesus is able to fix what Adam broke. I want to point out a couple of verses, and, and you guys are welcome to, to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's going to be on the screens as well. I want to read verses 45 through 49 that talks about how Jesus exercises his perfect sonship and takes Adam's place. He, he fixes Adam's broken sonship. He can redeem, he can, he can fix, he can put right again what Adam previously had broken. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 45, it says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam, talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earthly, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. A few verses earlier in that same chapter, if you just scroll up or, or maybe turn back a page, in verses 20 through 22, it says, But now Christ, who has been raised from the dead, is the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Pointing out again that, that reality that, that if Adam is our father, sin is a part of our nature. That if Adam is our father, then, then death is the right response from God that we deserve. But if Jesus is the one that we hold to, then while Adam gives death, Jesus is able to give life. Let's look at it. Paul talks about this same idea in Romans chapter 5 as well. I want to read for you guys how it talks about that, that Adam sinned and brought death to all people. And so Jesus, through his death, is able to bring life to all people. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. To summarize this whole idea of Jesus being the second Adam, Romans chapter 5.19, that last verse that we read, does it. By one man's disobedience, by Adam's sin, people deserve to be punished. By one man's obedience, by, by the perfect man's sacrifice, by the God-man's sacrifice, by Jesus' sacrifice, what Adam broke, Jesus is able to fix. What Adam fractured, 
what, what Adam passed on by his sinful human heritage to all people, Jesus is able to, to give life. Jesus is the spirit that gives life in the same way that Adam was the, the, the breaker of the world that brought death. God was pleased that the failed, flawed, broken children of Adam would be redeemed by the blood of the flawless, perfect, triumphant sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. To put all this as simply as possible, I talk about it for 10 minutes and Kent Hughes can put it together in like 14 words. All right, I want to read this for you guys. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam that we, sons of Adam, might become sons of God. Three big truths in a really short amount of time. I would have been happy to, to sit here and talk for hours. It probably would have been easier for me if we had just sat here and talked about it for hours because more than anything I had to go, no, not that, no, not that, no. But the last question that I've got for you guys, the, the, the last detail that we have to talk about is, all right, so we talked about a whole bunch of really big theological ideas. So what? We're always going to end every week with a, with a so what? What do we do about it? Why, why does this mean anything to me? Why, why does this matter to you? I would argue that all of these things fit together in one overarching message. See, really, this, this overarching message is the message of Scripture. How incredible of a God we serve. How powerful our God is. How, how mind-blowing our God is. If you understand how Jesus was fully God and fully man in just one person, it means you're a lot smarter than all the rest of us because it blows my mind every time I try to understand it. And that one's a lot easier than the Trinity, right? Because then we've got to take three persons that are all fully divine and, and fit them together into one God and, and somehow make sense of that in our mind. You know what all of that tells me? It tells me that God is really big and that truths that, that he knows to be true, that he exists in, that he is, are really big. And I can't understand all of them. And that's okay. Because if I understood everything about God, well, that's not a very big God, is it? If it's something that I can just put together and make sense of in my head, that means that, that maybe I'm bigger than God. Maybe I'm smarter than God. If, if God totally makes sense to me, that's not a very big God. So as we see the hypostatic union, as we see the Trinity, as we see this important message of how God became flesh, about how God, Jesus, became the second Adam who gave life to all of these people, we see some really big truths. We see some really important messages. We see some really important things that, that we should wrestle with, that we should try to understand. But even more than all of those details, all of those things that we can get sucked into, you know what we can leave with today? We can leave today knowing that we worship a powerful God, that we worship an incredible God that that can and should regularly totally blow our minds. But even though this vast, powerful God that, that as I was talking about with my kids this week, the Bible in Psalm says that, that he holds the oceans in the, in the small of his hand, that he's that big. The kid's song, he holds the whole world in his hands, right? A God that big and that incredible and that powerful still gave of himself sent jesus to come and to live among us and to live a, a kind of a rotten existence the human existence is kind of unfortunate isn't it 
how much more can we experience that than in 2020 when, when all of the, the junk of the world is just all over the place? Jesus left the glories of heaven to come and to live on earth, to come and to willingly sacrifice himself to be the second Adam, to, to fix everything that Adam and the rest of us since Adam have broken. That big, powerful, incredible God loved me enough and loved you enough to go to a cross for us. That big, powerful, incredible God that, that we may not ever understand reached down into humanity and loves you and loves me. Wants to be intimately involved in our lives. Wants to, wants to know us personally. Wants to spend time with us daily. Wants to, to hear from us as we pray with him. Wants to speak to us as we consider and study and learn from his word and, and hear from him every day. This big, powerful, incredible God deserves everything that we possibly have that we could give him. Because as incredible as he is, he deserves everything that I've got to give and everything that you've got to give. So let's worship him. Let's, let's leave here today going, man, God is big. I got to give him more. Man, God is, God is incredible. He deserves everything I've got to give. Would you guys pray with me? God, you are awesome. Truly, the, the, the core of what that word means. God, you are awe-inspiring. God, you shake us and, and God, you deserve it all and so much more than we've got to give. God, these really big ideas, these, these really mission-critical ideas to the Christian faith, that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that, that you are God in three persons, the blessed trinity. That Jesus came not just to, to, to be a man and to walk among us, but he came to, to set free, to fix, to repair everything that Adam and humanity had broken. God, we thank you that, that these big ideas, these incredible ideas that we saw in the baptism of Jesus, in the genealogy of Jesus, in, in these verses that we looked at today. God, we thank you that, that we don't have to understand all of them to know you. God, we don't have to, to pass a, a final exam to get into heaven where we have all the theological answers. God, we just, we, we just get to know you. We get to, we get to know that, that you love us and that you sent Jesus to come and to make a way for us to be reconciled, to be bought back, to, to be put back into a relationship with you. And so, God, as we, God, as we go home with our brains hurting this morning, God, help us to... To, to, to in the midst of all of the information, just be able to step back and look at the forest in the midst of, of looking at the details from the trees. Help us look at the forest and see, wow, we serve an incredible God. We serve a, a mighty and powerful God that, that we haven't even scratched the surface of. God, we worship you and we praise you and we give it all to you this morning. Amen.